The other day, I found myself in a jewelry store in Minneapolis, holding a very valuable diamond with a long pair of tweezers. Don't be too panic-stricken. Every once in a while, we drop these. So if that happens, don't worry. I'm a little nervous. Right? It's hard not to be because they're beautiful. To be honest, I was more than a little nervous. I was terrified that I'd drop this tiny stone as I moved it under a powerful microscope. Now I want you to look at that diamond and tell me if you see its, quote, personality. I was getting a crash course in how to tell what makes a diamond valuable. My guide is Jennifer Bellaflor, who owns New Gill Jewelers. This is the kind of place that doesn't just sell jewelry. It's all about the experience of understanding what you're getting. We were in what Jennifer refers to as the store's gem lab, which is above the retail shop. She mentions that she has brought grade school field trips up here, so she's used to being patient with newbies like me. But as you turn the knob a little bit, you can move through the stone. Oh. See? So I can look at the stone in layers like an MRI. Knowing how to judge a diamond is kind of her superpower. She was trained at what is known as the Harvard for Gemologists, the Gemological Institute of America. But as much as she loves examining the different qualities of these gemstones, she doesn't shy away from busting myths about the diamond market. So your run-of-the-mill white diamond is not really scarce at all. Um, A big company that I'm not going to name check, but the biggest company you can think of in the diamond business a long time ago figured out that making the public believe that diamonds were scarce was a way to drive the price up. Diamonds are plentiful. That doesn't mean that the, you know, the street outside here in Minneapolis is lined with them, but places where diamonds are found, there are enough of them for you and me and billions of other people to all have a diamond. The company that she danced around but wouldn't quite name is De Beers. It's been around since 1888. It came up with the slogan, a diamond is forever. At one point, De Beers successfully cornered about 80% or maybe more of the world's total supply of diamonds. But even if you have heard of De Beers, you might not know that the company's founder, Cecil Rhodes, also created the Rhodes Scholarship, one of the most selective and prestigious educational opportunities in the world. The scholarship was essentially Cecil Rhodes' dying wish, directed by his will, to bring students from English-speaking countries to study at Oxford University for three years. And every year, just 32 American college students are selected to win a Rhodes Scholarship, which gives them a golden ticket to do grad work at Oxford and to join a network of influencers that help each other change the world. Rhodes Scholars have indeed gone on to become world leaders. Bill Clinton was famously a Rhodes Scholar. They've been U.S. Senators, including William Fulbright, Bill Bradley, more recently Cory Booker. They've won Nobel Prizes. They basically go on to run the world. So who gets to be a Rhodes Scholar? And what does the now controversial origin story of the world's oldest graduate scholarship say about the role that power and prestige still play in higher education. Welcome to Bootstraps, a podcast series about merit, myth, and education. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter at EdSurge and host of the weekly EdSurge podcast about the future of learning. This is the final episode of a six-episode series that we've been co-producing with our friends at the journalism nonprofit Open Campus. We are unpacking popular narratives about who gets what opportunities in America and wondering how it could all be different. Today, 
we're taking you inside the world of prestigious graduate fellowships, mainly the famed Rhodes Scholarship. And it starts with diamonds and Cecil Rhodes. Do you say Cecil or Cecil? Oh, yeah. I mean, Americans say Cecil, but the rest of the world says Cecil. You say potato, I say potato. That's Tamsin Peach, an historian and professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, who has looked into the history of the Rhodes Scholarship. Cecil Rhodes, I'm going to go with Cecil. Cecil Rhodes was a symbol of colonial power and bravado. Yet as a teenager in England, his health was not great. So his family sent him off to a British colony in the south of Africa, the Cape Colony, hoping that the climate there would help him out. When he was 18, he started working at the Kimberley Diamond Mine. And he got some financial backing and started buying up any other diamond mine he could get his hands on. And how he achieved his success was, well, it wasn't pretty. Because of uh, his treatment of workers, which he underpaid and kept in in really heinous conditions. And that was the African workforce uh, in the mines. Rhodes learned early on the value of controlling as much territory as possible for his mining operations. But he also held strong beliefs about who should be ruling over that territory. As he wrote at one point, quote, I contend that we are the first race in the world and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. If there would be a God, I think that what he would like me to do is paint as much of the map of Africa, British red, as possible. End quote. Well, okay. Early in his mining exploits, Rhodes returned to England to attend Oxford University. He he studied at Oxford, but he never graduated. He had sort of, he wasn't a very successful student at, at Oxford at all. Uh, But he took something away from the public schools of Britain and of Oxford, which was really tied up in masculinity and um, sports and the the kinds of sociability that, um, that those colleges at Oxford really foster. And he saw the impact that the networks at this university had. And he was impressed. As he wrote to a friend at one point, wherever you turn your eye except in science, an Oxford man is at the top of the tree. Rhodes ended up winning a seat in the parliament of the Cape Colony, and he later became its prime minister, and he exploited his political positions to keep expanding his mining empire. Specifically, he introduced laws to force black people from their lands to make room for industry and development. He never married or had a family, and over the course of his life, he wrote and rewrote a will with an unusual plan for how his vast fortune would create a legacy. Each draft of the will included something like the Rhodes Scholarship. But the early drafts? There's a lot of um, sort of semi-mystical discussion too about um, empire and, you know, why he thinks the scholarships are good. That then falls away from the later wills, the, later, the last will, even though that the, the scholarships remain. So you sort of can see some of the thinking that informs his final um, testament. The first draft of his will that he wrote in 1877, it called for, quote, the establishment, promotion, and development of a secret society, the true aim and object whereof shall be for the extension of British rule throughout the world, the perfecting of a system of emigration from the United Kingdom, 
and of colonialization by British subjects of all lands, where the means of livelihood are attainable by energy, labor, and enterprise, and especially the occupation by British settlers of the entire continent of Africa, the Holy Land. It actually goes on to list more places in the world, but I think you get the idea. He wants to create a brotherhood um, of white men who will um, rule the world and literally, um, yes, very global ambitions. And he sees the sort of British Empire as the vehicle for that. Rhodes' final will drops any reference to a secret society and talks instead of fostering the, quote, union of the English-speaking peoples throughout the world. It's a lot less Hollywood bad guy. From the beginning, these scholarships were not just for U.S. students, but they were for people in various former and current British colonies. And in the will, he sometimes calls them the colonial scholarships. But the biggest number of scholarships go to students in the U.S. It is clear he sees these scholarships as some sort of social glue to help hold a colonial system together. These are merit scholarships, so they don't consider the financial need of students. But Cecil Rhodes wasn't just looking at academic merit. He wanted the program to sift out men with four distinct criteria. So those four criteria are academic excellence, kindliness, (laughs) uh, which is um, today really community service, um, sporting prowess, manliness, um, uh, and it's actually energy, is energy to use your talents to the full is the official quote. Um, And then there's a fourth one, leadership. Obviously, leadership. He wanted these to be leaders of men. The Rhodes Scholarship, it's still governed by this will. And so changes to the criteria have required an act of parliament in Britain, such as when they updated it so that women could apply. Okay, so these days, Rhodes Scholarships aren't just for white men. But they are still rare and sought after. And so the Rhodes Trust has set up an elaborate selection process to make sure they find the most qualified students. The diamonds in the rough. Actually, I learned from Jennifer Belliflar, that jeweler in Minneapolis, that diamonds in the rough may not be the best metaphor here. On my visit to the Gem Lab, she brought out a small cloth pouch holding diamond rough. And what I have here is a really historically significant little parcel to show you. Wow, yeah. She laid out a small pile of a few dozen gemstones, But I would not have guessed these were diamonds. For one thing, they did not have that classic diamond shape of the kind of two pyramids stacked on top of each other. And they were all kinds of shapes and sizes and colors. If you look carefully, you'll see there's an orange one. That's the rare color. Here's a pink one. I've got a couple of pinks in this parcel. Another pink one, another pink one. So these are just really fun to look at because they give us an idea of how diamonds come out of the ground. I mean, these are kind of rocks. Yes, they are definitely rocks. So I asked her what this phrase, diamonds in the rough, means to her from her perspective as a diamond expert. So saying that someone is a diamond in the rough implies that we know that with certain activities, um, whether it's polishing, whether it's education, and I meant polishing metaphorically, that that person is going to turn into something really amazing and valuable, right? Whereas in real life, like those rough diamonds I showed you, We can't really know what's inside them until we cut them. Many times you have to bid on diamond rough that you don't know whether it's clean on the inside or not, right? You might pay a lot of money for it and find that you've got yourself some gray pebbles. In other words, we may think of a diamond in the rough 
as something we can just find, maybe hidden among the other stones on the ground. But in fact, the finding is the easy part. It takes a lot more effort to know what you've found. So in real life, saying something is a diamond in the rough isn't really as flattering as one would think. If we meant it the way those words really mean, we would be saying, I don't know, you might be something, you might be nothing. Right? So that's why I don't feel it's flattering. Right. It doesn't say like, oh, I see that you're definitely going to be this gem. Just like with a rough diamond, I have no idea what you're going to be unless I can find a way to look inside. So diamond cutters and diamond buyers will polish a little window on the diamond so that they can see inside, and then they have a better idea of what's going on in there. So how can students who are applying for a Rhodes Scholarship provide a window into their worthiness? Well, they write essays, including a personal statement of who they are and what they stand for, and a research plan for what they hope to do at Oxford. Each applicant also has to have the endorsement of their institution, often from the university's president vouching for them. They also have to provide at least five letters of recommendation, and they can submit as many as eight. I hear most folks put in seven recommendation letters. Seven. And it's probably fair to say that not every student has an equal shot at having all that backing. Because you do need quite a lot of institutional support in order to put an application through, Um, Like the seven letters of recommendation, Um, if you're coming from a school that maybe there's quite a lot of, just as an example, maybe racial prejudice or something like that, then you might have an issue getting seven letters of recommendation from people at that institution, um, depending on how the layout is of the people at that institution and how they feel about you. And that might have nothing to do with you as a student. It might just be like people's prejudices or people's opinions, and that can quite deter uh, the process. That's Naomi Baru, and she knows the application process firsthand because she went through it a couple years ago. She was an undergrad at the University of Maryland at Baltimore County, a public research institution, and she decided to apply after one of her professors suggested she try it. She was a standout science student, and she had already been selected for the university's Meyerhoff Scholars Program designed to help minority students major in STEM fields. Her institution totally backed her, In fact, the college's president, Freeman Rabowski, sees getting his mostly middle and working class students qualified for opportunities like this as part of his social justice mission. Hrabowski is himself a legendary civil rights leader. When he was 12 years old, he marched with Martin Luther King Jr. in Birmingham, Alabama, and got arrested. The university had never produced a Rhodes Scholar, but it had endorsed several students in the past, and UMBC had had some finalists. And Hrabowski says he always tries to warn students that they might feel like they're in a different world if they make it to the interview stage. I remember years ago, one of our first finalists came back and said, Doc, I I really get your point about comfort level in a reception. Because the person who got, the the, the young woman who actually got it, um, who was from perhaps Chapel Hill, and, and she was the daughter of a very, very prestigious person, And she said, Doc, when she walked in the room, everybody knew she was somebody. And she knew how to hold her glass of wine. And she was talking. She said, I was just marveling that she, I said, well, she's been doing this all of her life, you see. My student was first generation college. She said, I see where I have not had the privileges. And I do understand that the Rhodes wants the most impressive Americans 
to go. So I get that. I do get that. But I do think it's an opportunity to look at what else some of us need to do. The year Naomi was applying, UMBC had just set up a formal office to help students who were trying to get a Rhodes or, or one of a handful of other selective scholarships, like the Fulbright or the Marshall, that have a similarly complex application process. The university called it the Office of Prestigious Scholarships. Now, for decades, these kind of offices already existed at Ivy League colleges and big research universities. There's even a national association for people who work in that type of office. It's called the National Association for Fellowship Advisors. And the most selective colleges in the U.S., they have typically done the best in sending students to the Rhodes Scholarship Program. Since the Rhodes started back in 1902, Harvard has had 379 students win it. Princeton, where I went, has 209 of these fellowships. These elite colleges kind of have the application process down to a science. Schools like maybe Harvard have programs where people are sort of selected their freshman year and then like trained for years. And then other schools, the programs are a bit uh, not not as structured. Um, So it was actually quite cool to be able to help sort of restructure the way that we go about Um, preparing students for applying for these scholarships. Since UMBC's process was pretty new, Naomi admits it was far from polished. And that led to at least one close call for her. It's very easy to miss steps. Um, Like, even when I was applying, we almost forgot to submit my transcript. Like, it was just, we just forgot. Like, it just wasn't a thought because I was the only one applying and it was the first time that Dr. Householder had run this before. So it was, we were overwhelmed by all the letters of recommendation and all of the, like, the essay and all of these things. So it was very easy to just, like, forget one thing. If they had missed that step, she would have been done, disqualified, since her value as a candidate was only visible through this elaborate system of paperwork. She did make it to the interview process, driving herself to a nearby D.C. suburb with 14 other finalists from her district. But even there, the system seemed designed for a different kind of candidate, not a STEM-focused student like herself. Yeah, the panels of judges, they tend to be a lot of humanities or politically inclined people. So I think in my panel, it was mainly lawyers and people who were involved in um, politics and humanities and such. So I knew the questions that I would be asked were different from questions that I was used to thinking about. Uh, So that was, I think, the hardest part for me and the most, uh, I think, worrisome part for me trying to prepare for, because I didn't even really know how to begin to prepare for that. Yeah. She even did a mock interview beforehand with four or five UMBC profs. And then the weekend arrived for the real thing the final chance for the Rhodes Scholarship Committee to try to put Naomi and other applicants under a microscope. You have the interview uh, Saturday morning, but Friday night there's a cocktail sort of meet and greet um, where you get to meet all the interview panel and you also get to meet all of the other 13 other people who are being interviewed and they select two from that district. So the Friday night you pick actually from a hat or that's how they did it that year. Maybe it's not... Uh, customary, but you pick from a hat a number, and that's how you decide who gets to go first, second, third, fourth, etc. And then Saturday morning, you go in for your interview, and then you all go for lunch, and then you come back, and they lock you basically into a building while they decide <laughs> who is going to be the winners. Now, it sounds like then you felt like the long shot or the underdog somehow. Yeah. Just because... Why, why is that, do you think? Just because your school had never sent someone? Is that the key reason? 
Yeah, just because yeah, the school had never sent anyone. And yeah, I didn't really have people at my university who I was talking to about like other students that I was talking to about this process because everyone was kind of doing other things. So it, it I think that took the pressure off quite a lot uh, because it no one was like expecting this. So after her interview that Saturday morning, she had her lunch with the other candidates and they waited for the answer. Then one of the judges comes out and then announces that they've made their decision and then all the judges come out and then they tell you. And that part is, is a bit, <laughs> it's a bit awkward. Um, I think for both those who win and also those who don't win, but that's the way they do it. And one of the names the judges called was hers. I just heard Naomi. I didn't even hear my last name. I think at that point, my ears were just like, what? <laughs> I was so surprised. Um, it felt like I was on another planet. Like, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I just, like, honestly couldn't believe it. Naomi's family and friends, they threw her a party when she got home with confetti and cake. And the university's president, Freeman Rabowski, he reportedly cried. He's the kind of university president who gets to know his students and he becomes their champions. And he knew that Naomi's success also reflected well on UMBC. He has been building a list of impressive academic achievements for his lower-income, minority-serving state university. His students have won a large number of Fulbrights, for example. The university is the top in the nation at graduating black students who go on to get MD-PhDs. And now, in Naomi, their first Rhodes Scholar. The value of the scholarship, it flows not just to Naomi through her, back to the entire university. All of this build the brand, builds the brand. All of this builds the brand of the university as first-rate academically. I mean, we are delighted that we've done fairly well in sports, but we are a nerdy campus. We take great pride in being nerdy. I mean, we, we think of um, Beckett as our muse. We, we have plays like Waiting for Godot. We do the kind of plays that depress you. <laughs> Herbowski is about to retire after almost 30 years of leading UMBC. And elevating the academic stature of the university, it's been his life's work. And my sense from talking to him a few times over the years is that he sees all the students at his university as the most valuable kind of diamond that, with the right motivation and educational opportunity, can achieve anything. But he also knows that not everyone sees his student population with so many immigrants and minorities as the shiniest Things like having a Rhodes Scholar, that's something that other colleges just can't ignore. And he hopes it means they just have to take UMBC seriously. Never doubt the power of prestige. I, I, after, after 70 years on this earth and 50 years in higher education, I am well. When, when, I mean, when people look at my resume and they, say that I, they see that I have honorary degrees from Harvard and Princeton and they go, oh, you must be okay. <laughs> it's... It is what people do. It is. Our goal has been able to show that you can be a middle-class place, UMBC, and produce best-in-class. I mean, because that's what America needs to do. It needs to be able to show, quite frankly, that one can be working a middle-class and go to the very top intellectually. That, that should be our goal as a, as a country. Back in the Gem Lab... I learned that diamonds really do have some qualities that make them inherently special for rocks. They are the hardest naturally occurring substance on the planet. That's pretty cool. And one reason they're used in engagement rings is because they endure. Both literally and symbolically, they are not going to break with use. 
So judging the value of diamonds, by the way, it turns out to be super subjective. Jennifer told me that different parts of the world, they have different preferences. And I would say that American consumers are, interestingly enough, less interested in the quality of the diamond. They're less interested in color and clarity and more interested in quantity. Whereas in some other markets, like overseas, you find people valuing much more high-quality diamonds in smaller sizes if necessary. So it just really depends where you go what people think is going to give them that prestige. The American market, the quantity of the size of it, rather than just the... The size and the number of them, all those things are more important to most of my clients than people in an overseas market. But I do have some clients who feel the way I do. I would rather have a small diamond that was very high quality and it would somehow please me to know that diamond's secrets, you know, as opposed to a bigger one because I don't really need a bigger diamond as a way of communicating to others that I have been spoken for and he's something, he's rich, right? Whereas a smaller, higher quality diamond isn't designed to communicate with other people for me, it's designed to communicate within that this is, this is high quality, this is real, and I know it's secret, and you're looking right at it and you don't even know. There are some efforts these days to make sure a more diverse group of students apply for the Rhodes Scholarship, to at least give it a shot. A clear example of that is at Oregon State University. It's had an office to help coach applicants to uh, competitive scholarships for a few years. But Leanne Adam, who runs that office, felt they could do better at outreach. And she believed that started with the office's name. The office name was originally Prestigious Scholarships. No, by the way, that's the same name UMBC uses, and lots of universities, actually. Although I think there's a bit of a movement away from considering um, the prestige nature of the scholarships and taking a little bit different approach. Wait, so what's wrong with the old name? Prestigious Scholarships certainly describes what it is we do, But I found that when I was talking to students, I found that I felt the need to explain away the prestigious nature because it's such an off-putting word. Um, I would ask them to reflect on what what does prestigious mean and um, who benefits from the prestige and, and why would they call it that? And um, it was really kind of an off-putting um, word that I think probably um, put more barriers up for students who might come and talk to me about scholarships than um, creating the welcoming and inclusive environment that I was striving for. Leanne took this analysis of the word prestige really seriously and tried to understand why it could be a barrier. There are lots of words that students associate with the word prestige, and I have this Thing up on my wall where we've I've sort of crowdsourced it with students. Um, things like esteem, stature, status, distinction, eminence, prominence, um, but some other ones that have a little bit of a negative connotation like exclusive and elite, 1%, wealth, privilege. Um, so it's that negative connotation, I think, that makes what we do feel exclusive in a way that we don't want. So the goal has always been to take something that is inherently exclusive, because after all, these scholarships are extremely competitive, and make our service as inclusive as possible. And so 
the sign above the office is different these days. We finally settled on national and global scholarships advising, and we feel great about it. To be clear, the name is not the only thing that they've changed. Our philosophy about this work is that it isn't about winning scholarships. It's about the professional development that students have the ability to gain and the transferable skills that they can build in the process of applying for these competitive scholarships that is professional development. It's things that they can use for other things like applying for graduate school or jobs or other scholarships. So the idea is that they're getting something out of it even if they don't win the scholarship. And it sounds like some students are frankly worried about being associated with the legacy of Cecil Rhodes. They're worried about that origin story of the scholarship. And Leanne is happy to help students engage with that past. I encourage that. I encourage that conversation because I find that most people do not know the history of the Rhodes Scholarship. And so I feel like as part of the racial reckoning that we're experiencing in this country and in the world, it's important to confront that conversation. In my view, having a conversation about the history of Cecil Rhodes is no different than confronting the history of Confederate statues on college campuses or names on buildings that represent people who no longer reflect our values. And so I think it's really important for anybody who's considering applying for the Rhodes Scholarship to be very aware of what the history is. And that doesn't mean to discourage them from applying. It just means that the privilege that comes with having a Rhodes Scholarship carries a lot of responsibility in that there is a responsibility to do good in the world, to to provide some sort of restorative justice for the negative history that's associated with Cecil Rhodes. Oh, and, and speaking of that history. Right, Jeff, and I have to um, make a confession that I also uh, hold a Rhodes, I'm a Rhodes Scholar um, from Australia. That's Tamsin Peach, the historian that we heard from at the top of the episode. She is also someone personally wrestling with the history of the Rhodes. And she says that many Rhodes Scholars are active in pushing for equity and social justice issues to address some of the very same systemic problems that Cecil Rhodes was a part of causing. And she points out that this is part of a larger reckoning in higher ed. There are some really, there's some really brilliant research coming out of the U.S. and Glasgow and other places on the legacies of slavery in universities. Um, and I just mentioned one book by Craig Wilder called um, Ebony and Ivy, which has such a great title. Um, uh, and also that work's beginning, beginning in other places, inclu- including as Australia as, as well. So no university under the sun, and that is a bit of an um, exaggeration for emphasis, but is free of these questions. Any, any university that has a bequest of some kind uh, has, is um, using, trading, benefiting from, distributing money that was made in all sorts of ways that we would now see as potentially unsavoury. And so what I think matters, um, and not I'm not attempting to be an apologist here, but I'm a historian, so what I think matters is uh, a real engagement with that past that's honest and critical and then a preparedness to be transparent about it and to let it... Um, and to act differently. So to use those funds for for other kinds of purposes. Tamsin suggested that I shouldn't just take her word for it, that the Rhodes Trust is open to these questions. She said I should talk to the head of the Rhodes Scholarship, Elizabeth Keish. Her title is Warden of the Rhodes House. That's the headquarters of the scholarship. And sure enough, 
she agreed to an interview. Her parents came to the U.S. as refugees after the 1956 Hungarian Revolution. And her research has long focused on moral and political philosophy. I started by asking the head of the Rhodes Scholarship, does she worry about the equity of the selection process? Absolutely. We think about that all the time. <laughs> um, you know, because we're really, our, our, our vision, our, our mission is to, to make it possible for, for uh, every student who has the, the academic ability and the other qualities, you know, that we're looking for uh, around uh, uh, leadership potential and concern for others and, and commitment to truth and to, 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 to uh, courage and justice. We want them to aspire and pursue this. And, and you know, we know that there are all kinds of contextual differences. And, you know, as you say, institutions where there's a lot of support for applicants, institutions where there's none, uh, for we are a global scholarship, so we also, in many constituencies, you know, we select through 61 committees on five continents. So there's a lot of other kind of equity uh, challenges also around, um, uh, you know, the difference between a student who, let's say, got a scholarship to the United States and got all of the advantages of an American college education versus maybe went attended a local university. So there are many, many layers of this. She pointed to a growing set of outreach efforts that the group is doing. For instance, they have videos on the Rhodes website walking students through the application process to help students who go to colleges that just don't have an office of prestigious scholarships, whatever its name is. The warden of the Rhodes house, she did flinch a little, though, when I told her about that university that took the word prestigious out of its scholarship office's name, she said she does want to be welcoming, but it's clear she also really does care about the prestige of the fellowship. You know, I suppose I've always felt that uh, there is something to be said for um, aspiring, you know, to, to do really competitive and hard things. You know, it, it takes a lot of work to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship uh, and, and all of the kind of other uh, major global fellowships. Uh, you have to think hard. You have to ask people to write letters of recommendation. You have to, you know, uh, write a personal statement, et cetera. But all of that is great because, you know, too often in college, you know, you, you take classes and then you take an exam and then hopefully you retain some of what you learned, right? Uh, but you know, universities are not always that good at kind of, if you will, forcing students to try to connect the dots and put it all together and to think about who am I and what do I stand for? What do I aspire to and why? And how have I become who I am today? You know, and and I think that applying for these fellowships is something that enables students to to try to kind of, you know, piece that together and 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 connect the dots. There was one part of this that did resonate with Quiche, though, which is that the Rhodes folks, they do worry about the wrong kind of prestige-seeking in applicants. A really important part of Rhodes selection is that we're trying to weed out people who just want the status, you know. We want people who actually want to study in Oxford and want to be a part of this community and want to stretch themselves, you know. And so that's, so maybe in that sense, prestige isn't the right word. What about the legacy of Cecil Rhodes? After all, there is currently a roaring debate at Oxford, with activists calling to tear down a statue of Cecil Rhodes that's on a university building. 
The warden says that the Rhodes Trust hasn't taken a position on whether or not the statue should stay. But I did want to get her response to this overall concern about the legacy. We can't change the origins of, of the scholarship, um, you know, in, in extractive industries and mining and in, in southern Africa. We can acknowledge it um, and we can see what's, you know, in the present day, how do we make the scholarship uh, more truly global and kind of address some of these inequities of the past. So one of the goals we have, which I'm really excited about, is uh, to increase the number of Rhodes Scholarships for students from Africa to 32, which would equal the the number from the United States. That's uh, the biggest part of our fundraising campaign is actually to increase the number of African Rhodes Scholarships. And, you know, I always look at that both as a an acknowledgement of our history because the original wealth, uh, now many other people have since contributed to the Rhodes Scholarship, but our, the original wealth was made on the African continent and yet most of its beneficiaries have not come from Africa. And so how can we in the present day, and so this is what we're doing, how can we um, uh, uh, make, uh, make uh, uh, you know, open more doors of opportunity? If, if, if Cecil Rhodes walked in and had, you had two minutes with him, like, what would you say to him? Gosh, you know, one of the things that I'm fascinated about, you mentioned this, that, you know, his first will and then his seventh, you know, he died at 43. I mean, he was very young when he died. And I, so... I mean, I, I always wonder, I mean, I'm 60, you know, I wonder, like, what would he have been like when he was 60, you know? Um, so, I mean, I would hope that he wouldn't sort of look at me and recoil in horror <laughs> of having, oh, my gosh, there's a woman in charge of my scholarship, you know, and she's a refugee, daughter of refugees and, you know, all kinds of things um, uh, from a from a small college, you know, et cetera. Um, but I, I would love to talk to him about, okay, the British Empire is dead, you know, uh, what, what, you know, looking at the world now, you know, what do you think are the most important uh, challenges? I'd love to engage him on that, on that topic. I think it's safe to say that Cecil Rhodes would not be chosen for a Rhodes Scholarship if he were around today to apply. The original goal of his scholarship was to provide an Oxford education to the most promising elite white men so they could help manage Western civilization or something. He would hardly recognize today's higher ed system and the much more diverse pool of candidates selected for his own scholarship. But how much has really changed? In my conversation with Freeman Rabowski, he said that even when less privileged students earn these elite opportunities, they often struggle with a sense of belonging. You know, we send large numbers of students on to the most prestigious institutions, but I have to tell them, prepare for issues of class to come up. Prepare for that. You won't be able to go to Switzerland on the vacation. You can't go to Bloomies to shop when you're discouraged when you're there at Stanford. I mean, they're, they're just, these things are real. They really are. That doesn't mean you don't have wonderful people there. I'm blessed to have honorary degrees from a lot of these places and to work with these campuses. But I am saying to my middle class students, you must be very strong. And not be intimidated by the power of wealth when you are competing against people from very, very privileged backgrounds. Naomi Baru is now studying at Oxford. Her research focuses on nuclear fission and on revolutionizing renewable energy by developing fusion power. 
And she says the Rhodes Scholarship is already opening doors for her. The biggest benefit that I think is difficult to see unless you're in the program is the alumni network and basically just the network in general. Um, alumni are very active, I'd say, in the Rhodes community. So you'll often see we have an, a, a news uh, an email list that has all of the Rhodes Scholars from forever. And if you ever have a question or need something urgently or anything, like almost every day there's an email on that list served saying, hey, like I need this, can someone help me with this? Or hey, like I'm writing this book, can someone help me with this chapter? Like everyone is very um, open and willing to help each other out. And it turns out she was able to go to Switzerland on vacation. Or actually not Switzerland, but... Alumni of the Rhodes program actually pay for current Rhodes Scholars to go on like trips, like fun trips, not even like academic trips. So there's an alumni trip that I went on my second year where I went camping in Chile in Patagonia National Park. And I'd never gone camping, never thought I would go camping. And to go camping in one of the most beautiful places I'd say in the world is like, that's just like an opportunity you don't just come across and just comes from being in this kind of network with the other Rhodes Scholars. And somebody just says like, hey, anybody want to go to this free trip? Basically. So they subsidize the trip. Yeah. So you, like you pay for maybe part of the flight and then they're like, OK, once you get here, then we'll pay for everything else. Like we'll uh, sort out the camping and everything. And yeah, <laughs> that was that. So for two weeks, we were just sorted and ferried around. And it was it was really amazing. Systemic changes are slow. In 120 years after the creation of the Rhodes Scholarship, power and prestige still play a big role. In this series, we've been looking into this phrase, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And it's become clear to me that not only do some people not have any boots to pull on, others have designer boots studded with diamonds. So we're in a moment, though, where at least some of the people who run the most prestigious educational opportunities in the world, are trying to change that. They're just still trying to figure out how. This has been Bootstraps, a joint production of Ed Surge and Open Campus. This was our season one finale, but we hope to be back sometime. If you want to make a season two a reality, we need to show there's support out there, so please leave a rating or review or tell a friend about the podcast series. If you haven't heard those first five previous episodes, we definitely invite you to go check those out and binge them. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. This episode was edited by Rob McGinley Myers and Scott Smallwood. Thanks also to Rebecca Koenig. Music this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like this podcast series, check out the weekly Ed Surge podcast that I host, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. That, that wraps it up. Thank you so much for listening.